Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy day after Labor Day. I woke up this morning confused and thought today was Monday, but it is Tuesday. Uh, we have a fantastic show uh, planned for you today. Uncle Jimmy, we were throwing a curveball, uh, a slider, I don't know. We were throwing a curveball yesterday. Michael K. Williams, uh, the actor who played Omar Little in my favorite TV show, The Wire. You guys have heard me talk about The Wire for the last 20 years. And so it shook me up and, and so we, I can't think about anything else. I can't talk about anything else other than The Wire. And so today's show will be totally devoted uh, to the television show, The Wire. And for those of you that haven't watched it, this show is for you. Because if you want to understand America, I think it's essential that you understand the television show, The Wire. And I think it's that important. And so some of you that may not have seen the show, uh, some of you that may not have seen all of the show, I think should stay tuned, stick around, and, and listen to this show because it's about issues much broader and bigger than the typical uh, television show. We're gonna be joined uh, later in the show by uh, Ed, Edward Norris. He was an actor on The Wire, but more importantly, in real life, he was the police commissioner of Baltimore from 2000 until 2002. And The Wire is a television show that ran from 2002 to 2008. Ed Norris played the detective, Edward Norris, on about four seasons of The Wire. Uh, he does a very popular radio show in Baltimore. He's a friend of mine. I've been on his radio show many times talking about sports in The Wire. He's going to come on the show today and talk about Michael K. Williams, the actor, the importance of The Wire, and what the city of Baltimore represented in the, the show The Wire. He knows it firsthand, not just from playing a role on TV. He was the police commissioner in Baltimore for several years. Uh, he'll join us. I'm also going to invite on a friend of mine who basically introduced me to The Wire. There was a show before The Wire called The Corner that was also written by David Simon, the creator of The Wire, David Simon, the former newspaper writer for The Baltimore Sun. Uh, he and Ed Burns, who is David Simon's uh, television partner, Ed Burns was a former police detective in Baltimore. They did a show before The Wire called The Corner, and that show was about drug users and the impact of heroin abuse on the city of Baltimore. It led, it was the precursor to The Actual Wire, which was a show about drug dealers and drug users and the whole nine. And so. I'm going to try to start a fire here about Michael K. Williams and the show The Wire, and then we'll uh, go down to Jacksonville, bring in my friend Dennis Evans that basically introduced me to the show and loves The Wire and understands The Wire on the, kind of the same level that I do. Dennis is a guy that was a former sportscaster in Kansas City and, and Jacksonville and St. Louis. Uh, but we're going to have a big discussion on my favorite TV show. And then we're gonna end the show. Uncle Jimmy has told me he's prepared a eulogy for Omar Little, 
not Michael K. Williams, but a, a eulogy for Omar Little, the famous character. Jim, you you got you want to preview any of that, or should we just wait? I just just want to just keep going. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm not joking about this fire starter. The greatest show in the history of television lost its greatest character, greatest ambassador, and greatest actor yesterday. Michael K. Williams died of an apparent drug overdose inside his Brooklyn apartment. On the iconic TV show, The Wire, Williams played the iconic role of Omar Little, a gay stick-up man who robbed drug dealers while adhering to an unshakable moral code. The Wire was a show about cops, drug dealers, drug users, and politicians. It produced an unforgettable star who was none of those things. Omar was a man with a code in a city, Baltimore, that violated every code. The show was gritty and profane. Omar never cursed. The police, politicians, and drug dealers were ruthlessly ambitious and when necessary, ruthlessly violent. Omar never put his gun on somebody who wasn't in the game. No show has ever done irony as well as The Wire. A thief, Omar Little, overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling heroin. In Baltimore's Den of Thieves, a thief played the role of savior, moral crusader, and wise man. Over the course of five seasons, Omar delivered as many classic lines as Hemingway and Twain. Man, money ain't got no owners, only spenders. That was from season four. You come at the king, you best not miss. That was from season one. A man gotta have a code, season four. I got the shotgun, you got the briefcase. It's all in the game though, right? Season two. How do you expect to run with the wolves come night when you spend all day sparring with the puppies? Season four. The Wire and Omar Little had a profound impact on my worldview. The creator, David Simon, produced a narrative art that explained America and its urban cities in a sophisticated manner. The Wire did what black rappers falsely claimed they were doing with commercial music. The show exposed the perversion of our drug war, the perversion of black culture, and the perversion of politics. Ice Cube, Ice T, Tupac Shakur, Notorious B.I.G., Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, and all the other so-called CNNs of the ghetto exploited and glorified drug culture. They were and are melanated versions of the sleazy wire lawyer, Maurice Levy. They turned a profit off the suffering and degradation of the black poor. Simon, a former newspaperman, and his writing partner, Ed Burns, a former Baltimore detective, objected to the exploitation in the most powerful way possible. They shoved it in our faces. Most people looked away. The Wire never attracted a massive viewing audience. Hollywood's liberal tastemakers refused to bestow its highest honors on the show. The, the Wire never won an Emmy. Michael K. Williams never won an Emmy for his portrayal of Omar. 
the alleged champions of diversity and inclusion, the liberals who all just love black people, reserve their biggest accolades for The Sopranos and James Gandolfini, Breaking Bad and Brian Cranston, Mad Men and John Hamm. Rather ironic, isn't it? A show depended on a mostly black cast and a storyline depicting the plight of mostly poor black people is widely regarded as the greatest show in TV history, but it was never recognized as that by Hollywood. How many Grammy Awards have been showered on the rappers who glorify gangster culture? Societies produce what they reward. The Wire didn't receive its flowers when it aired from 2002 until 2008. That's why 50 Cent's Power replaced The Wire. Power is a juvenile, unsophisticated celebration of drug dealers. Did Michael K. Williams receive his flowers while living? No. With far less than one-tenth of the screen time of Gandolfini's Tony Soprano, Cranston's Walter White, and Ham's Dom Draper, Williams created a character, Omar, the equal of any TV character in history. And has a character ever had more impact? Omar Little helped me and others overcome their negative perception of gay men. I grew up a meathead, a typical jock with a typical attitude towards gay men. Omar made me reevaluate my attitude. The content of his character was so strong that it made me evaluate the content of my character. I'm not endorsing homosexuality. It's no different from sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It's a sin. It's no different from the sex I've had outside of marriage with women. It's no different from my gluttony. Gay men have the same struggle with sin as I do. I foolishly used to think I was better than them, that my sin was more righteous than theirs. Omar Little taught me that all men are, cre are capable of adopting a code of conduct worthy of respect. Omar taught me that all men are created equal. He humbled me and made me a better person. For that, I will always be thankful for Michael K. Williams and The Wire. Damn near cried yesterday, Jim. Thinking about Omar and right. thinking about The Wire. And I, I could understand why you would. I truly could. I mean, he, 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 he was a, I hate to use this word, man, but we, we might have to say that in, in the realm of The Wire in that moment, we, he, he was an icon. He, he represented. Jim, you know how seriously I took that show. You and your youngest daughter came to my house. I threw a big party at my house for the final episode of The Wire. Everybody dressed up like Wire characters. And, and you gave her first place. Yeah, your daughter, yeah. She yeah. came in, did she come in Snoop? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, you know, there are people that, there are geeks about Star Wars. Right. And I'll giggle and laugh at them and they dress up as Han Solo or any of that other stuff. But that's the kind of geek and nut job I was about The Wire. That's why you come on here every day dressed like Prop Joe, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? 
you just gave me the great signal to bring in Dennis Evans <laughs> so I don't have to listen to these fat jokes. Uh, <laughs> Dennis, don't laugh uh, because he was clowning you before we went on air. So don't let, don't make me Dennis, don't, Hey, man, you, first of all, Dennis, you and I are from Kansas City. Right, This right. dude is not from Kansas City. Don't listen okay. to this dude. Okay. This dude is from Overland Park. He, this dude had his own swimming pool. Right. He wouldn't lie on you. Th- this dude invited Carl Peterson to his house. Come on, right. man. Uh... All right, Dennis, uh, ignore the uh, prop Joe fat joke that uh, Uncle Jimmy cracked on me. Uh, Although, I will say this, and get ready for the beep button, look the part, be the part, (laughs) (laughs) That's straight from the wire. Uh, (laughs) So much for that. Jim, we're going to cut down on the cussing on this show. Man, we just... I'm keeping it real. The wire, you know, it was gritty and profane, and that's one of the great lines from Prop Joe. He was coaching the basketball game, I think, in season one. Anyway, uh, Dennis, I think The Wire is the most important television show ever. Uh, One, do you agree? And if so, why is the show so important? Absolutely, I I agree. First, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed. I was expecting you to... uh, Give me a A-O for my introduction. And if he was going to do the prop, Joe, you needed the braids. Let's go with the braids. Let's get a braid wig. <laughs> Let's do that. But no, this is, you know, one of our connections early on being in Kansas City was, you know, The Wire. And I tell people I was living out of town when The Wire was on. And you and I would sit down on Sunday nights. And this is the only television show I've ever done this with. We would sit down on a Sunday night and break down the show, do a full analysis after the show was over. It was just crazy, but that's what the show meant. To me, it comes down to you know three things. It was relevant. That was a television show that was relevant. It was one of those shows, and a show to me that's good is one that stands the test of time. It was relevant back then, it's still relevant now, and if you watch this show, just like The Corner, if you watch it 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, it's still going to be relevant. The other thing that it was, was it was revealing. It gave us all a peek behind the curtain. It let people you know, look into a world that if you're the average citizen, you know, your average person is not going or living in a place where you're gonna be able to say, you know, hey, I, I know, you know, people know couple of guys doing a little bit of, you know, this and that here and there, but guys who are truly living in the street and living that life, most people don't get an opportunity to see that, not only from the street level, but to be able to see that, you know, from the political level, to understand what it meant in the school system and to see the disadvantage that these kids were at in a school where you're trying to get an education and, you know, there's a whole different world going on that I think other people don't see. And the last thing is real. One of my only knocks sometimes on The Sopranos was I think they took a few too many liberties, you know, with The Sopranos sometimes. But there was never a time when I watched The Wire where I thought, that's not real. It was a real television show. And to me, that's what makes it the best television show of all time. I mean, the, the characters, the writing, the acting, everything about it. I felt connected to them and they made me care about things that maybe might not have been on my radar, but it made you genuinely care and it made you ask questions as to why 
You wanted to know why things were a certain way, why certain people don't have options, because a lot of these kids didn't have options for the life that they ended up in. And I think that's what The Wire gave to us, is it made us look at ourselves and say, how do we as a society have a place where this takes place and this is real life to these guys? Dan, you said a mouthful and, and <clears throat> revealing, you know, you use relevant, revealing and real, and, and all of that applies to me and why I love the show. Uh, and and I, I don't want to, I've got some family that I grew up with very close to that this show uh, explained quite a bit about them and their life. And it's a part that I understood and I wanted other people to understand because I think people have a misconception about the poor and a misconception about uh, how they operate within a, a drug culture or a ghetto culture and how they make the decisions that they make. I, I, I understood it, but I never thought somebody from Hollywood or a TV show could actually explain it. And this show did explain it. And again, it doesn't excuse it. That was the other thing I, I loved about it because I'm not a person that ex, you know, wants to excuse anything. And, and so I, I just, I love the show for what it revealed to the rest of America and things that I, I couldn't maybe put into words or try to explain to people like, how does this happen? How do these situations happen? How do people make choices, compromise choices like this? And we all think like you just come out of the wound and you can choose the good path or the bad path. And a lot of times the culture, society will push you down a path that you think is like the only path available to you. And, and that's what I thought The Wire represented. It just, it just spoke to my heart and it just, you know, the, the, I call The Wire basically the Bible of TV for me. It, it, it really explains my worldview and if people that have read anything I've written about America's drug war, pieces I've written uh, for Playboy magazine and people when I was at ESPN and try, trying to explain mass incarceration, and all that, I just thought this was like a sophisticated novel documentary that, that, was, that was just told in this brilliant, beautiful way that was compassionate to, to everybody. And, and Dennis, I'm gonna go back to the, to the real because we talked about this yesterday. Uh, one of the things I loved about The Wire, and it wasn't just about how it portrayed poor black people in the inner city, but I thought it portrayed cops very fairly, and you and I were having this discussion yesterday about, and, and you know, I'm just gonna say it, I'm not gonna apologize for saying it, but I've tried to explain to people like, Derek Chauvin, the cop in, involved with George Floyd, he's more Roland Press Belusky than he is some evil monster. And if you watch The Wire, there's a white cop named Roland Press Belusky who is a good, person, well-intentioned, but he's an idiot that had no business being on the police force. He, he 
took the butt of his gun and put out some black kid's eye. Uh, he did a lot of dumb stuff. And you never felt like there was evil intention. There was just somebody that had no business being a cop. And a lot of times, I just thought the, the Wire portrayed police fairly, but didn't demonize them. And that's one of the things I respect about the show. And to take that a step further, that's the same person who then later on became a teacher at the same school where these kids were going and worked with them in his free time, you know, took one of the kids under his wing who, you know, lived with family that would steal his clothes, that would steal his food, and he would bring clothing to the kid at school. He set up programs for these guys after school, and he was genuinely invested. And I think that's one of the things that I like, too, that they showed about it, that there are people, I don't care what walk of line you're in or what profession it is, there are people who care. And one thing you said to me like years ago when, when you talked about you know despair, and you said one of the biggest enemies to people is, you know, especially to our black youth, is despair. When people feel like there is no help, when people feel like everyone is against me, then you just give up hope. So to be able to see someone like a Prespolowski, who was, he was an idiot. He had no business being a cop. His family had been, you know, a police and, and that's how he got in. I think maybe it was like a father-in-law or somebody like that. But he was someone who, you know, was a great teacher, great in education, but had no business being a policeman. And I like that later on they showed that side of him and the fact that he was somebody who was compassionate. He was someone who cared. Uh, Jim, did you have something you want to add? I, I, I just thought you, you hit on it about all of the different aspects that it showed. But I, I think it also gave you an inside look on drug addiction. I mean, it gave you, I think the Bubbles character gave you yeah. an inside look at how people make a decision that, yeah, I have this drug addiction, but I'm still a good person, you know? I mean, that down to the very end, I mean, you're talking about something, something, I mean, down to the very end, I mean, Dookie, getting, come on, man. Yeah, <laughs> dude, there were, for people that haven't seen the show, in season four and five, the first three seasons are about a drug dealer, Avon Barksdale, and his crew. He's partnered with a guy named Stringer Bell, and he's got, they got lieutenants, Weebay Bryce, and D'Angelo Barksdale, and blah. And it's about the Barksdale crew, basically, for the first three seasons. And then they come back in seasons four and five and show you a group of young people, kids, that are in, like, seventh, eighth grade, and they basically give you the backstory of Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell with a new bunch of kids, basically showing you, showing how, you how, how they're created, formed, how it's created. And, and, and even all the way down to Bubbles, because Dookie basically represented Bubbles. Da Daquan was this great kid, great heart, actually smart, but born into this horrendous family system and structure of no support, uh, family members, and then he gets involved with drugs, and then he be befriends Dookie, I mean, he be befriends Bubbles, I think, or, or so, no, it's some other drug user he befriends, because uh, Bubbles got up out of, of drugs at the end, by the end of it. But they basically showed you how life just repeats itself, and it creates a new Bubbles, and it's this kid named Daquan. 
the sh- anyway, I want to go back to Michael K. Williams uh, because Dennis, you hunted up something I, I thought was fascinating An interview he did with the Breakfast Club, and and Michael K. Williams, brilliant actor, overdoses on drugs. His as I mentioned in my monologue. The, the character of Omar Little, uh, powerful on many levels, but also I think it's the first show where a gay person was actually the hero, the ultimate hero of the show, and the person with the strongest moral code. But, but Dennis found a clip of Michael K. Williams doing an interview on The Breakfast Club that, that kind of leads to a different discussion about how his sexual identity and the identity of being Omar perhaps overwhelmed Michael K. Williams. Let's play the clip and then I'm gonna let Dennis explain. My girl was like, oh, there you go, Omar from The Wire. And I was like, okay. And then my other friend was like, you know, he's gay though. And I'm like, no, that's just a character that he plays <laughs> on the show. That's not him in real life. And people sometimes do get that, especially just when that was only what people knew you from initially. You know? you know, I'm going to keep it 100 with you, right? You know, um, um, this last job I, I did out there in, in San Francisco, man, um, when we rise, it made me look at a lot of things in my life that had happened to me. You know, like I mentioned it on Terry Rose. You know, I'm a survivor of uh, molestation, you know what I'm saying? And um, we're going to leave it at that, mm-hmm. you know? And, and yeah, I did question myself, and we're going to leave that at that, you know? But, you know, where I've been is really nobody's business and what I do in, in my bedroom or have done in my bedroom, I'm, I'm just not at, you know... I'm not at liberty to talk about that, talk about that really, but I will say this much: um, um, I definitely had to look at some things in my life and some 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 questions I had in my life, and, and that that got aroused in me playing my characters. Mm. You know, so I'm near with it right now. You know what I mean? Wow, Dennis, there was another clip you that we don't have, but. Tie those two points together that you made to me, I think, yesterday when we were talking about this. As I was starting to really research Michael K. Williams, and, you know, I knew him as Omar. I knew him as a guy who was a New Yorker who had been, you know, involved with so many, you know, youth charities and doing a lot. He was a New Yorker. He was a guy who was who was deeply invested in that community. But I wondered, I didn't know. Was this a guy who was gay? Was this somebody, you know, what was the struggle? What led him to drugs? And when I ran across the interview, it made me think to myself, you know, this role was so large. Omar loomed over Michael K. Williams, not only in the sense of, you know, his career, because it's always hard to move on from one of those characters because people always see you as that when you're in a movie or a TV show or whatever you're doing, but your personal life and thinking about this, you're talking about a young guy who's still kind of figuring out who he is as a person, figuring out who he is and how he fits into the industry. And you have this major gay character that you have played. Everywhere you go, people are calling you Omar. People, you know, a lot of people didn't even know his real name until way later on down the line after he had a few more roles. So you've got this role that swallows you up, this character that completely takes you in and then twist in the sexuality with that, too. So the one girl you heard her say on The Breakfast Club, you know, her and her friends were like, oh, he's not really gay. But if you watch the quote, you know, and watch the interview where he talks about, you know, 
that and then in the other one we didn't get a chance to see he says you know I got lost in that. He said, I was green. I was a young actor and I got completely lost in this Omar character. And before I knew it, I had to take a step back and try to figure out who Michael K. Williams is. And that's a hard thing to do when the whole world is judging and questioning your sexuality. And I think he kind of says, you know, it, it to me, at least it sounds like he's saying something about these characters woke up something in him and made him question his own sexuality. I don't know. I mean, I was never in the guy's bedroom, so I don't know if he was straight, if he was gay, but I just found it interesting and intriguing the fact that this man, based upon this character, started to really question who he was as a man and felt the need to really define himself based upon the sexuality and based upon the way other people were coming at him because he played this gay character. You know, one of the first thoughts I went to when we were having this discussion is just like, and obviously I'm a huge fan of Michael K. Williams, the character Omar. I've just sat here and talked about the impact it had on my own views and and helping me to have a more uh, healthy perspective and point of view on gay men. But I also think that We've gone down this hole of our identities being totally defined or primarily defined by our sexuality. And like that's front and center. How you get down in a bedroom is your primary identity. That's where we're at in American society. And I don't think that's healthy. I think we move from, and I'm talking about particularly for black people, but this is a universal issue throughout America. We've moved from seeing our identity in Christ, seeing our identity as husband, father, brother, provider, all these other things that I think are far more important than sexual, how you get down in your bedroom. We've made that the number one priority and how we interpret our own selves and let's, let's figure that out more than what is our identity in Christ if you're a believer, if you've taken on the responsibility of fatherhood, your identity as a, if you've taken on the responsibility of marriage, husband or, spy, or wife, we spend all of our energy trying to define what arouses us and whatever arouses us is most important. I think it's a mistake. I think that carrying this burden that Omar, uh, I mean, Michael Williams was perhaps carrying and because he, that character put the sexual identity burden on his back and he couldn't shake it off. I maybe that played a role in his happiness, lack of or abundance of happiness. I, I'm not sure, but that's one of my takes, Jim. I- you know, I th- <clears throat> the thing I think that's interesting about what Dennis brought up with this clip and listening to this clip. This is what mama meant by when she said you keep going to the barbershop, you're going to end up getting a haircut. I think if you listen to what he's saying, he's saying 
I wasn't really like this until I started playing this role and I started kissing this dude every day or every week. Pretty soon, I got lost in it. So you can say, well, how did that happen? How did that happen? You start kissing around, who's to say what, what button might kick you? Who's to say what might hit that little spot with you? See, this is how it happens. So, so you need to know where, to, where that's, because to me, I think that's what he's saying. He's like, ooh, I got lost. This got good to me. And, and I think that's something that... Jim, there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, and I'm, I'm going to keep it real, because like, I like to apply everything to myself. Uh, and, and now, don't go too far, Jesse, well, Jim. Jim, I'm just going to keep it real, though, okay. I mean, because you and Dennis know as well as anybody. Again, I can remember the first time Derek Thomas invited me to Diamond Joe's. <laughs> and I'm not cracking a joke. I remember we in the locker room, and they <laughs> meet me at, at Diamond Joe's tonight because he had some football stuff he wanted to tell me. And you think I didn't get lost up in that world? You, you think... <laughs> You think there wasn't some, some weeks where I spent four days and, you know, 20 hours, 30 hours a week up in Diamond Joe? Joe Magdy, I love Joe Magdy Senior. Love, love his wife, Wendy. Uh, love them. But I got lost up in there. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know how, I, I, I know, and what you're, you got to be careful because I'm a t the, the other thing, and, we can't go all the way here today because I want to keep it moving with, but I always make the comparison that like sex can be like the ocean. There's an undercurrent to the ocean and you out there thinking I'm swimming and I'm, I got this on. and the undercurrent of that ocean just keeps tearing you farther and farther out into the water. And the next thing you look up is like, I can't get back to land. No, you realize you can't swim and your ass had no business out there in the first place. <laughs> I get, but also, I'm just, yeah. I'm on a for real, yes. though. You can get so far out there, like, hey, can I get back to land and back to normal? And if you don't have some amazing self-awareness and discipline, you can't. And I think it's along the same lines of, of you know, experimentation, and I try to, hey, try this drug. There you go. The next thing you know, you, you stuck like wrong. Chuck. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I do, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dennis. Let, let me add one last thing because it's, it ties into my favorite quote. I'm a big Khalil Gibran person, and one of the things he says is there are among the people thieves who have never stolen, murderers who have never killed, and liars who have told nothing but the truth. So what's inside of somebody and what a character can bring out, what acting, what pretending, or as Jimmy said, going to the barbershop can bring out in you, you don't know what someone was before that. And sometimes it just takes a spark to, to do that or to make you, more importantly, make you question yourself. Because I think a lot of people just don't know, but it makes people question themselves and that's where people get lost. All right, so uh, on Twitter yesterday, I put out a list of my top 10 favorite Wire characters. Why are you looking like that? Uh, I saw Jim, the list. Uh, you disagree with my list? Here's my top 10. I'm just going to write it off real Have quick. you seen this list, Dennis? Uh, uh, yeah, Omar Little is number one. Yeah, Omar Little, number one, followed by Detective Jimmy McNulty, uh, Avon Barksdale, three, Stringer Bell, four, Bunk Moreland, 
Bodie Broaddus, D'Angelo Barksdale, Prop Joe, Bunny Colvin, and Frank Sabaka comes in at number 10 in the underrated season. Anyway, uh, did I have errors or omissions? Did I, who, who am I? Prop Joe? Prop <laughs> Joe did not make, he's number eight. He's number eight. What do you, you say? You got Rob Joe on it? Yes, number eight. Snoop too, too Snoop low. Didn't make didn't make Snoop, too <laughs> Snoop low. didn't make any. Arizona. Cheese didn't make the list? Hell no, not cheese. Uh, Dennis, no. any errors or omissions in my list? Bubbles has to be on there. Bubbles, I, I'm with Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy. Bubbles has to be on the list. That whole storyline of the attic and showing the guy where, you know, he was even talking about the uh, the undercover cop. He was helping walk down the street and he was like, no, I can, you know, look at you and tell, you know, you aren't real. You don't have those dead soldiers on your shoes. You know, you haven't been walking these streets and stepping <laughs> on these crack vials. You know what I mean? So what he brought to the table and showing his real life when he was living, you know, in his sister's basement, just that whole storyline, he's got to be in there. And the other one, Jason, that the character that has a little bit of Jason in him to me is Lester Freeman. How you left Lester off is beyond me. He called you Prop Joe. I'm going to call you Lester because you both have that. Lester was about truth. Lester, and I'll say that about you. You are about truth. You're about righteousness. You're about do it, you know, the right way. Go by the book. That's really what's, you know, your nature. And that's how Lester was. So I would have thought you would have liked him. Plus, you got to remember, you know, he pulled D'Angelo's girl, the young thing, the 20-year-old from Diamond Jones. But I thought, you know, I thought that would have made him your hero. (sighs) <laughs> Look, <laughs> what was the name of that club? I for, uh, Orlando's, Orlando. yeah, Orlando's, Orlando. yeah, Orlando's was, and, and when I put this list out yesterday, Lester Freeman was the one omission that needed to be in my top ten. I, I, I agree, I agree with that. Particularly when when he he turned the girl from Orlando's <laughs> into his bottom chick. Uh, <laughs> Hats off, Lester. Uh, yes. <laughs> hats off. Lord have mercy. Uh, but I, I'll just, so if Lester goes in and Bubbles go in, who has to come out? Who's overrated? I, believe it or not, I'd take Sabaka out. I would have put the others, I would have put Nick Sabaka in before I put in Frank. I liked his character more than I did. And also, I think I would, D'Angelo was too short of a time period for me. I mean, he was really only in it for about a season and a half, and he was a good character. He was a key character in the beginning, but I think over the longevity of the show, I think Lester was a more consistent character and left a more memorable... I mean, the D'Angelo storyline was great, but I just think Lester was a constant presence in the show, and and that, that to me, moves him up the list. Woo! I, I, no way I could take D'Angelo out, but go, go ahead. Look, now, I I just want to say, and I know this character won't make the list, but I just want to give her an honest, uh, honorable mention for her role in keeping it real in The Wire. And you and I talked about it not too long ago. Pretty Boy's Mama. Damon Bryce. Weebay's Weebay's baby mama. Weebay's baby mama who told him, (laughs) oh, you better get out here and get on this corner and get this work. You better make your daddy proud. (laughs) You, You better go get some more. That's a real story right there. It's you real. Had, who, who, what, what, parent, what parent would set their child up to do that? 
It happens a lot. <laughs> it happens and far more than what you know. Than what you know. And that is, that's one of the great scenes, one of the great characters from the show. It was one of the realest things. It's one, lit, I can remember the night that I saw that episode, and Dennis, I, I th- we got on the phone. I'm telling you, I was like, I can't believe they kept it this real. I can't believe they just showed it. And I asked myself, how did they even know? I mean, Ed Burns and, and David Simon, two white dudes, I'm like, how did they know this is going on? But if you cover this beat, like he was a detective, they, they've seen it all. But yes, that was one of the realest scenes, moments in, in television history. Uh, all right, I want to keep it moving and, and try to squeeze in some more before we got to let Dennis go. But I had someone reach out to me over Twitter and I've heard this all the time. Man, how can you love The Wire and, and be so critical of rap music? Because, and these people keep thinking that The Wire is the same as gangster rap music and that The Wire is somehow a celebration of drug culture and gangster culture. And, and I just keep trying to explain it. Hey man, what show are y'all watching? This is not a glorification of anything. It's, it's basically a documentary of, 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 of what's going on in these inner cities and the communities in major cities. Rap, on the other hand, is like celebrating this, but Dennis, I, do, do you have a, a, a thought on, am I right, wrong? I just no, don't I, see I the wire. The, yeah. No, I'm sorry, Jerry, I said I mean to interrupt. The, the difference is the wire showed you the consequences. They showed you always the consequences of whatever your behavior was. You know, there's always somebody gunning for you. Somebody's always at your neck. Somebody's always wanting to take your money. The police are at you. And sometimes the person next to you is your worst enemy. Whereas, you know, when you're listening to music, a lot of the music that's out here now is music that's saying is people who never did it telling you, you know, what they would do, what they should do, and and stuff like that, and talking about things that they've never done. Now there are a lot of you know young rappers who are out there living that life, but you also see the consequences that you know a lot of them are facing. But The Wire never glorified it. It put it out there and said, "This is what it is. This is the game, and and there's no two ways about it." And to me, the biggest part is it always showed the consequences for everybody. You know, it, that bleeds into a, another point that you and I had, or it's something you were kind of passionate about. The Wire's death scenes, you know, th- this, they were not a glorification and violence for violence sake. They tended to have far bigger meaning and significance and tried to make a larger point. Yeah, definitely. One of my biggest ones, and I ask the quote I say all the time, when Avon was talking to Stringer Bell and he said, there you go, playing those away games. Because you had Stringer who was not really a street guy, never in the dope business. And Avon's like, you know, I bleed red and you bleed green. He was about the money and the consequence and the lesson they showed was when you take a guy like this who's not really meant for the streets, this is what happens to him. He got caught up in the game and he got killed. Then you look at Snoop. Snoop, you know, underestimated Michael, you know, talked down to this kid, never really, you know, gave him his proper respect after she had trained him, but he had a mind of, of, her, of his own 
and it came back in bitter. I was just going down. I had a whole list of people. Bodie, Bodie, the loyal soldier, stuck with it the entire way, just true to the very end. And that's how it happens. The lesson is the soldiers are the ones who die. And I mean, that's what I liked about The Wire from the security guard being shot, from Avon's girlfriend being murdered. You know, all of those things were not things that were glorified. It was just showing, you know, Prop Joe, the way that they did uh, Butchie, all those guys, their deaths carried a meaning to it. You know, Butchie, I'm going to be loyal to the end. You know, that's what I was going to do. He was completely loyal to Omar and he paid the price for that. And I think that's what I respected about the show. Sometimes I felt like in The Sopranos, it would just be a a, a crazy killing. I'm like, I don't even know why that just happened. But I felt like whenever I watched The Wire and somebody got killed, there was a reason behind it. And I left there feeling something and and learning a lesson from it. And I, I just always appreciate it. It goes back to the part about just keeping it real. And they always kept it real. Hey, Dennis, speaking of the Snoop Mike line, I mean, right. I think the other thing that The Wire had, I think it just had great lines. You, you, you got to give it to Snoop. Snoop had the greatest line ever before being killed. How my hair look? Hey, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> How my hair look, man. How my hair look. I'm going I'm to go more serious because you left that. You ran off a whole list. And to me, to buttress the point you were making earlier about the consequences and why the wire was so important and so real, you left out. The, the most important death scene to me was season one when Bodie had to kill Wallace. I was getting ready to say Wallace. And, and oh, man. Oh, man. You trying to make us cry. Season one, season one, I've probably watched 15 times all the way through. And every time, even just talking about Wallace getting killed, I'm, I'm moved right now. And it's not just the scene of him getting killed. It's everything that led up to it. The conversations Bodie had with Poot about, we got to step up. That they're placed in a position where they know they have to kill somebody who they actually care about, feel sorry for, but they know that if they don't, they are going to get killed. And so this is another great example to me of why The Wire is so different from rap music in terms of, does gangster rap, do you ever listen to gangster rap music and want to cry? Maybe Dear Mama? Uh, on Tupac, does anything, does the violence and stuff they talk about in gangster rap music, does it ever pull at your heartstrings and make you be like, this is horrendous? This is horrendous for Bodie. This is horrendous for Wallace. It's horrendous for Poot. It's, this is just, look at this horrible situation the drug game and this lifestyle has put these because i think bodie at the time was 16 years old because yeah he went to the uh, detention center he went to the juvenile to t- he was just 16 years old and he's having to kill another 14 15 year old boy because if he doesn't he gets killed that that it's one of the greatest most moving scenes i've ever seen in television uh, and it's not just that particular scene, it's the whole build up and the way they explained it. Uh, I wanna move on to uh, another thing I wanna address is season two. 
lot of people. Season two went to the docks and brought in white uh, stevedores, dock workers, and that and, and people love to take a dump on season two. Oh, they messed up this show with the docks and blah blah. And I'm just uh, season two is just as strong as any. I think the first four seasons of The Wire all are about equal. Season five is really good. It's not as good as the first four seasons. But season two stands the test of time with any of the seasons of The Wire. Uh, Dennis, you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think at the time when they changed it, I was like, hold on, where, where are my boys at? Where are the kids at? I didn't understand what mm-hmm. they were doing. And I saw one of the actors from the show that, that talked about that in an interview. And he said, you know, as the cast, he said they were mad. They, they were sitting around and kind of grumbling to each other and saying, you know, what are they doing with this? Man, they're cutting us out of it. You know, now they're trying to make it about this, you know, almost like a show about the streets wasn't going to work. So they needed to bring in this other element. But when they and I'll say me as well, really got a chance to step back and see how they tied all of it together, how they tied, you know, this is relevant to this. And I think that's what people, that that's the real part people don't understand, you know, drugs come in from somewhere. They're not just falling out of the sky. You know, I mean, it, it's coming in from somewhere and to show how these guys, the you know, later on, Omar tied into the, you know, the Russians and, you know, all, uh, the Greek or whatever it was, just all of that being tied together, it made everybody see at each level. And it's like, OK, this is what they're going to do. They're always going to keep this street presence because that's what the show is about. But at the same time, we have to show it's not just street kids. And that's the part I like. This is not just Avon Barksdale. This is not, you know, just somebody who's, you know, in the hood selling drugs. All of this is tied in together. And that's to me what made the show so amazing. I agree. Uh, I, it took me a minute to get, get like you said, because I'm like, oh, come on. But as I started watching it, I enjoyed it because you, you it, it literally had the same elements that all of, you, you had the same problems that, 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 that you had with all the black characters. I'm a, the, I love the relationship between Frank Sabaka, his nephew, Nick, and his son, Ziggy. And a lot of people hate Ziggy and hate his character. And he was a loser and all that other stuff. But I'm just sorry. When Frank Sabaka was sitting inside that jail visiting room after Ziggy has gone down for murder, and he's sitting there looking at his son, who has never felt complete as a man who's never felt like he lived up to his father's reputation and the pain, the actor, I don't know who Frank Sabaka, I can't call the name of his actor right now, but I just, an incredible scene that another one that damn near makes me cry every time I see it when his son walks back into that inferno of a jail cell or whatever and he can, he can see his son about to be preyed upon because his son was weak and, and killed someone out of weakness and out of trying to be more than what he was. And, and to see the failure of his, on his father's face, his father had you know, dedicated so much time to his union and trying to save the docks 
that clearly he ignored his son and ends up paying the ultimate price consequence, the loss of his son. And, and you know, as you saw, Frank Sabaki ended up basically choosing death. Uh, he gets killed by the Greeks in, you know, a few scenes later or an episode or so later. But I, 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 I loved season two and all that. And basically it introduced the Greeks into the, who, who lived on throughout the rest uh, of the series. Fr- season two was tremendous. Uh, let me go to my uh, list of my five favorite scenes and we'll go errors and omissions here again. <clears throat> it's, it's, I don't know if we got time to, I, I wanna show a clip. I think we got a clip from my very favorite scene. It's an unusual choice, but when, when Avon and Marlo met in jail and it's the first time they interacted or engaged with each other, I just thought Wood Harris playing Avon and I thought uh, Marlo Stanfield, Jamie Hector playing Marlo Stanfield, just his reactions to what Avon said, I thought it was the best piece of acting the show ever produced and one of the best piece of acting I've ever seen on television. Could, could we play my favorite clip? I say let bygones be bygones, but f- all them east side f- That's just the way I feel about it. I got nothing but love in my heart for west side n- Nothing but love, of course. I mean, you know, I got to have my taste too. Forget that. So send my sister a hundred large. And the next time you come to Jessup, it won't be my girl talking at you. My word on that. A hundred large, huh? So what's up, man? What's up with you otherwise, you know? Uh, the game is a game. Always. Man, the way I was telling you, when he said always, always. I... That's my favorite scene. There's better scenes, there's more emotional scenes, but that's my favorite scene. Uh, Stringer, uh, when he tells Avon he killed D'Angelo, that's my number two. Bodie killing Wallace, three. Sabaka and Ziggy in jail. And then, uh, I don't know if you remember when Randy, the little kid, and Sergeant Carver, they at the hospital. You gonna save me, Sergeant Carver? You gonna help me, Sergeant? Woo! I cried that one. <laughs> anyway, those are my those are my five favorite scenes. Dennis, the errors and omissions. I cannot watch that Randy scene. Just hearing that and thinking of him sitting in that hospital and knowing, you know, how bad that hurt, hurt you know, hurt the officer not be able to help him because he was well intentioned and wanted to. But I love that scene. What I love about that that scene with Wood Harris is it's, it's just the way he, he's talking, and he's real cool about it, and then he's just like, so what's up? Everything else good with you? And it would just show, hey, I'm in prison. I don't have nothing else to do, man. You're here. Let's talk. <laughs> so <laughs> I like that. Uh, the, the scenes I like, I love the Weebay talking to his wife. I, I also like when, you know, when he had to tell his wife, you know, let that boy go. I also like when Bunny went to the prison, same thing. He went to jail to talk to Weebay and say, hey, your son has potential. Love Omar and Bunk on the park bench when he's like a man has to have a code. D'Angelo, when he's talking to, you know, to the young little hoppers down there in the low rises, telling them about the chicken nuggets. Also love when Stringer's talking about the 40 degree day. I, I use the 40 degree yeah. day all the time. I, I love that. And then I told you my other favorite one is the opening scene 
set the whole tone when they had those dudes in there and they walked the guy by and told him, you know, your boy snitched on you. We gave he told us so much. We gave him McDonald's and they walked him by and he stuffed French fries in his mouth. And then they take the other kid and he puts his hand on a copy machine and they the copy machine. The copy machine and he's saying true. Did Pookie kill Ray Ray? False. (laughs) To me, that just said a whole... That's a true story, man. We've done that before. (laughs) You've done it or you had it done to you? (laughs) He's talking... Season five of The Wire, the final season, opened with that scene. They tricked a kid into thinking a photocopy machine was a lie detector test, and it is hilarious. Uh, and sad. Listen, <laughs> I got I, I, I got to stop you real yeah. quick, if I may. Hey, Dennis, I, 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 I know I'm bringing up another movie, but remember the movie Friday? Remember yes. when Felicia said, "You ain't got to lie, Craig. You ain't got to lie." Right. Jason, why are you lying? What? You and I did a show. I remember when Stringer Bell got killed oh. by, 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 by by Omar and Brother Muzane. You came on the show talking about. I feel like I just lost a family member. I never felt so bad in my life. Yeah. We didn't oh, even talk that listen. night. No, we didn't talk. That was, was, that was the one didn't night. You wrong. We, didn't, we did. He was, no. no, we did, but you were like, hey, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. <laughs> he couldn't even. I, I felt <laughs> the same way. No, we I'm didn't have you. a real conversation. Dennis, I remember the conversation distinctly, honest to goodness, and you're going to remember it as soon as I tell you. I kept telling you, I kept running it back and forth because I thought Stringer's hand moved yes. at the end and then yes. he maybe survived. Literally, I kept running it back and forth. Yes. I think his hand moved and I don't think he's dead. That's how bad I, I didn't want Stringer to die. Dennis, yeah. he said. He, he told the Jim, truth. Jim, I ain't never, I, I, I feel like a real family member <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, they killed Stringer, man. But, but he went out like a G. What, what, what did Stringer say? Well, get it, on. Get it over with then, <laughs> Mitty Fickies. <laughs> get on with it. Well, yes, he did. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that's a hell of a scene. And I certainly, and I did. I used to run it back up. I don't think he's dead. I think he's going to survive. This man took like 20 bullets in the t- stomach, and I think he survived. All right, uh, we got to get out of here on this final note. My five favorite TV shows of all time. The Wire obviously is number one. Uh, I list The Sopranos as two, but it's really 1B. And I list The Shield as number three, and it's really 1C. And then Mad Men, and then, uh, I'm just sorry, I love Sex in the City. I got a thing for Sarah Jessica Parker. People get on my ass about liking Sex in the City, but Jason, I like <laughs> Sex in the City, Sex in the Country, <laughs> Sex on the Subway, <laughs> Sex on the Greyhound. <laughs> I gotta give Dennis credit; he turned me on to the Shield too. Yes. Uh, you know, he turned me on to. But anyway, that's my top five shows. Any errors or omissions? I'm, I I'm with big you. Big love on there. Uh, you know, I'm I'm I know I'm going way out of the box, but I would you are you talking strictly dramas? Let's qualify. No, that. Are you, you, you can put Sanford and the Sun on there, Dennis. I know what you're going. I was going to say Sanford and the Sun <laughs> is going to be on there. I mean, I, I would definitely get rid of I'm with I'm with all of the rest of them. But and also 
eliminating the ending, I would put Game of Thrones on there. I would put Game of Thrones at the bottom, you know, probably in fourth or fifth place after Sanford and Son. I loved it. They ruined the ending of it, but I, I would still give them their propers and put them up there. Damn it, Dennis, you did so good up until the end. Yeah. <laughs> now, Game of Thrones, I can't, th their last two or three seasons, Dennis, were straight garbage, and I loved it. A after the first three or four seasons, I thought, like, hey, man, this could be better than The Wire. And then they just crashed and burned for two or three seasons. No dice for me on Game of Thrones. And I mean, it would make my top 10. And I, I, I rewatched the first four seasons, but yeah. I thought it crashed. And it's just like Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Bad, the first three, four seasons. And then it crashed and burned. Uh, but I, I, I just, for the reasons you talked about, and I'm t I love rewatching The Sopranos. Love it. But. It is not always as realistic as The Wire. It's not as important. The show that I, I'm t every time I watch it, I say, The Shield, man, what are people sleeping on? <laughs> this is, yeah. and the first episode of The Shield and the last episode of The Shield, I'll put up against anything that's ever been on TV. I can, I want to watch it now, but I can never find it in HD. And I, call me spoiled, but I'm not watching anything where the screen shrunk in like that and it, it's not HD. I just can't, I can't watch it. I need to find a oh, pure you know, HD huh? version yeah, of it. Well, I mean, you, 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 that forehead, you know, he dreaming in HD. <laughs> you, know, you know, your forehead that damn big, you know you can't look at nothing else unless you're okay. Shit. That's the one truth that man told me. Jimmy, Jimmy. Jimmy. Don't make me have you take that hat off. <laughs> it's, always, it's always the brothers with the hat off. Crack the head, head jokes. <laughs> I told you, Dennis, you want to come here laughing at them prop joke shows. He loaded for you, man. He said your head looked like a helmet. He looked like the Michigan helmet. Before they had face masks. It just looked like a piece of leather over his head. Oh, well, wait a minute, man. I, I said that about you in Kansas City when you was on Channel 9, man. <laughs> Dude, that, that's all. We, we've always joked about that, man. Come on, man. Hey, you all right, Dennis, we got to let you go. Thank you so much. Go do it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Good seeing uh, you, man. All right. Bye. All right. Uh, you've heard me talk about the great food and our friends over at Good Ranchers and all they have to offer. You may have even seen me sampling some of their great food right here on the set. Their chicken breast options are all 100% Cornish hen, and their beef options come pure, 100% grass-fed cattle, and all of their chicken, beef, and pork are all USDA graded. The quality of the food you'll get is unparalleled, from their Ranchers Classic and Family Feast Bundles to their Prime Seafood Package. Good Ranchers has plenty of great food for everyone in your household to be very satisfied with. But stop waiting and go order right now. If you subscribe, you'll get $20 off and free express shipping. Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com fearless. Jimmy, you know who called me uh, yesterday and told me they ordered Good Ranchers? Uh, Susie May. The May family is on my Good Ranchers kick. 
Okay, I can see Susie doing that. Hi, don't go anywhere. Ed Norris, a member of the Wire cast and former police commissioner of Baltimore. Next. Did you and Monel shoot your boy Pookie down on Carey Street just like Monel said you did? No, no. Bye. Lying. Mm. 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 Machine is never wrong, son. Man, can't never keep his mouth shut. I should have busted a cap and Pookie ass my own self. Left Marnell home and shit. He just a bitch is all. The bigger the lie, the more they believe. <laughs> uh, welcome back uh, to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Uh, one of the greatest opening scenes, or just one of the greatest scenes in TV. That was from season five. And Bunk Moreland, the black officer on the left of the screen, was on the right, was an actual former commissioner of the Baltimore police in real life, Ed Norris, who played Detective Ed Norris on the show The Wire. Ed's a popular radio host in Baltimore now. Uh, he's out of politics, uh, thankfully, survived politics by the skin of his teeth. Uh, Got to work with Michael K. Williams and all the people on the great uh, staff and team of The Wire. Uh, Ed, Ed Norris, uh, welcome to the show. And I, I want to start here. That scene at the beginning of episode five, is any of that based in truth that criminals <laughs> are that stupid that you could fool them with a copy machine? 100%. Um, I've seen that done, actually. It was usually done with drunks. Um, I saw it done with a, a, a teenager that was sober, but I've seen that done with drunks when I was at the NYPD. Um, you got to amuse yourself somehow. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ed, uh, obviously we invited you on because Michael K. Williams has passed. He played the great character Omar on the show. Uh, how well did you know him and just if you could talk about the importance of the role he played and just mm -hmm. how well he played that role of Omar. Yeah, I didn't know him as well as some others. I'm very, I was friendly with Lance Reddick and, and um, uh, Wendell Pierce, Bunk, the, he just saw the last scene. I, but I knew Michael and I got to hang out with him outside the wire uh, in Baltimore, we'd run into each other and stuff. And uh, he's a wonderful, immensely talented man. Um, and with the, the commonality was it turned out after getting to talk to him for a bit that we grew up in the same area in Brooklyn, New York. I'm, a few, I'm like six years older than him, but it's uh, we grew up in the same area, so we had a lot of things to talk about. And he became friendly, but just a great human. And as far as his importance, I mean, if The Wire is as people describe it, many people have it as the best show on American television, or one of the best, top two, top number one. Um, he may be 
the iconic character, the iconic character from that show, um, where how many people know him just by their first name? Everybody knows Omar. He's he's transcended the wire. I've seen references to Omar and things like The Simpsons and and things like that. Um, there's T-shirts everywhere, and um, Omar coming is as famous a line in television as you know Joey's "How you doing?" from The Friends and things like that. So I mean, this is he's made a tremendous impact, and and for the show, which was all about the the drug world. There was you know, corruption in, in government and, and the drug world and the police world, and how they intersect and all the terrible things that go on there. And uh, he's like, despite the fact he's he robs drug dealers and, and shoots people, he's the moral compass of the show. He really is. He's like the moral compass and also an openly gay character in the show, um, which would not be an easy thing to do in the world, that underworld of drug dealers. And... For those of us on the outside, uh, and, and I say on the outside, but th there was a part of the wire world that I was familiar with because of family members that uh, were involved in that lifestyle. But the police and political side of it, uh, I was unfamiliar with completely, mm -hmm. but it all just rang so true to me as an outsider, you having been commissioner, uh, police commissioner in Baltimore, a successful police officer and leader, how authentic was that show to reality in Baltimore? That was the most authentic police drama I've ever seen. And it's not because I was in the you know, cast member. Hands down, the most realistic, spot-on police drama I've ever seen. And if you ever worked or lived in Baltimore City, it was actually unique to Baltimore, where everything, down to the finest detail, um, there was tons of inside jokes. The, the slang was unique to Baltimore, but it was very much, and it was all filmed on location. The interiors weren't, but of course, but the outside, all the exteriors were filmed on location in Baltimore. The language, the people, the stories are true. They just changed the names. These are all uh, characters in Baltimore City. Um, and they would just, you know, mix up the names, but the stories would be, you know, stuff that actually did happen. Um, because they had, you know, technical advisors who were with the BPD, myself, um, but it was spot on. And there was so many inside jokes. I don't know how, if you didn't live in Baltimore, that you would get some. There was a point where I, I left the Baltimore police after three years. I went to run the Maryland State Police. And it left people in the city pretty upset, or you know, certainly my bosses and the mayor and, and such. So there's a scene in the wire that I'm not actually in, but the phone rings in the homicide squad. And um, you hear someone pick it up, says, Norris, line two, state police. And this was premiered in the theater. The whole theater erupted in laughter. No one would get that if you saw it in Cleveland or Dallas or Los Angeles. But if you're from Baltimore, you knew exactly what they're referring to. So they, he went through great pain to make that as accurate inside as possible. One of the things that people were able to pick up on is Thomas Carchetti was basically <laughs> Martin O'Malley, I believe. And O'Malley, O'Malley as mayor, that's who appointed you police commissioner, mm -hmm. am, am I correct? And so correct. I, I, you were uh, Irving Burrell or Stan Valchek or I'm not. <laughs> the, but I, on a more serious note, the thing mm -hmm. we were just talking about before we brought you on, I was crediting The Wire with 
perhaps being the last thing on television that actually treats police officers fairly. And I say that because take Roland Presbalewski. And, and mm. you know, I'm just going to say it. I don't want to draw you into a controversy, but this is what I believe. Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis mm. is probably more likely Roland Presbalewski, an idiot in over his head that did something <clears throat> that led to someone's death, the same as Roland Presbalewski taking the butt of his gun and putting out a, a black teenager's eye. He's not some evil person. He's someone caught up in a system that can bring out the worst in people if they're not self-aware and if they're not always 100% perfect. And so that's what I credit The Wire for. In it didn't demonize drug dealers. It didn't demonize the police. It mm -hmm. didn't demonize the people in the community. Uh, if anything, it demonized politicians, and I think they deserve it. Everybody else is just a worker bee. The, the police are just doing what they're instructed to do by politicians, and the community's just reacting to the forces from the politicians and the rest of the community. I, I just, that's what I credit the, it was, it's the last thing I've seen in mainstream media that's actually fair to police. I think they were fair to both sides. I, I think you're right. I think they were very fair to the police, where they humanized a lot of the police officer characters in the show and showed them, you know, as um, some were warriors, some really went out as true believers, some were lazy or corrupt, and the vast majority were just in the middle going to, uh, into work every day. They also humanized the drug dealers, which I had not seen done. You know, e either they make them heroes or antiheroes or, 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 you know, villains. This, I thought, showed them as, you know, a lot of kids trapped with no opportunity to get into this. They end up in this horrible life, um, but they're human beings with the same desires everyone else has. I thought they did a great job of humanizing both sides and taking swipes at the politicians, which I think was um, pretty well deserved in, in, in most respects. I thought they were real fair to everybody. I just think they did a great job as, as keeping this as real as possible. And I think the, I hate to jump ahead if we're going to talk about this, but the closure, the final episode of The Wire was one of the best I've ever seen. As, as much as the Sopranos are criticized for the terrible ending or the disappointing ending, as for their series. I think The Wire was brilliant in the way they just showed the futility of the drug war, where, you know, the kids are still slinging, the cops are still typing and working, and, and nothing at all has changed, despite the five seasons and all the people that have died, all the people that have been killed in that show, all the things that have gone on, all the lives that have been ruined. The life goes on and the drug war continues with great futility and everyone's just doing their part. The police, the drug dealers, everybody. And I thought they did a brilliant job of that as a close. I, I, I thought the first four seasons of The Wire are all even. They're all immaculate. I think the final season of The Wire is great not at the same level as the first four. And even though I love them slaughtering the media because we certainly <laughs> deserved it as a longtime journalist. Scott Templeton is a perfect example of what goes on in the mainstream media. I, 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 I think the ending in the final episode was good. I'm gonna mm -hmm. get, have you ever seen the TV show, The Shield? Yes, sure, yeah. To me, the, sh the final episode of The Shield is the greatest episode of TV I've ever watched. And so I don't put 
the, the Wire's final episode on that level. But, but what I did like, if you take the final season in totality and the final two seasons in totality, I love what Marlowe represented, not in a positive way, but again, talking about the futility that you're talking about, I mm. thought Marlowe represented like, man, you guys thought Stringer and Avon were bad? Mm-hmm. Those guys actually had some humanity. Avon like really cared about his family and wanted to take care of his sister and his dad that's in a nursing home and D'Angelo that is nephew. And you know, whatever you think about Stringer, he had ambition. He wanted to be legitimate. He wanted mm-hmm. to move out of the drug world. Marlowe was just a predator who wanted to make money and was, had no human connection to anybody. And I thought he, what, what David Simon and the show were saying is like, we've got a generation of young people coming up who have no family connection. They've been raised in foster homes. They've been left in the streets in, in little homes to raise themselves. They've been completely neglected and they're gonna be more predatory than the previous generation of drug dealers. That's what I really loved about the last season of The Wire. Yeah, and I think you're accurate on that. And everything David did, and I will speak for David, but everything he did in that show uh, had a message. Um, even as far as how I got into it, he, you know, he took me to lunch, basically. As I was police commissioner, and when the series just started, and he took me to lunch. It was just basically a curtain raiser, just to tell me how he's going to kill the police department on on video, on television. And I said, oh, man, and then we had I had gone down on a warrant when I was at the NYPD. It turns out he was there, so all of a sudden he got he perked up. We got interested. Got talking. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, is the commission going to be, you know, a different race or a woman? He's like, no, it's going to be a white guy. I'm like, great. People are going to think it's me. And uh, he said, no, it's not you. He hated, he disliked one of my predecessors, felt that he really destroyed the department and said, no, no, you've undone a lot of things he's done. Um, and the next day he invited me to, to come in as a cameo to kind of take the steam out of the, the insult to the department if I was inside, if I was in on the joke. And then I came off the set. He said, hey, you know, you're not bad. You want to do it again? I got you know, five seasons out of it. Um, but that was all. The whole the whole series was a message from him about what had gone on in the city and how it was left in this mess. And unfortunately, I live here. I love the city. But it's a gaping wound of the city. We have a lot of problems. And um, a lot of damage was done by different, uh, you know, different groups in the city. But that's all that he was portraying here. Do you think anything has improved or was improved by the wires depiction of Baltimore did anybody in Baltimore do things differently or better because of the wire uh, I don't know about that I know for a, a while there was the city had a lot of hope you know after I had I was commissioned for three years and there were people came in after me that continued to reduce crime and to see a lot of hope but it's really backslid greatly um, we're, we're in a bit of a mess right now we're, we could have between three and four hundred murders this year again um, it's really it, we're in a bad way here I don't know if it's changing I think the national message I think was more powerful because nothing really changed here um, 
as far as that that I saw. Um, I just think people nationally, internationally got the message. I was filming the Jack the Ripper uh, documentary in London and someone came up to me. It was widely popular in Europe. So, I mean, people have seen this around the world. Uh, they teach classes about it, Johns Hopkins and other universities. So, I mean, it's, it's way more than a television show. I think it's a, a great essay on um, just, you know, what's going on in, in urban America in many cities. I think that's what the message was. But um, as far as changing for the better, I, I unfortunately I wish I could say that. It did, it did for a long time, and the series hasn't been on in a long time. But it certainly has gone back to where we were when that was filmed. And, and I just, you're a real-life example of the political abuse, in my view, mm-hmm. and corruption of Baltimore. You had some pretty indisputable success as police commissioner there, getting the murder rate below 300 for the first time in forever and the reduction in crime. And the next thing you know, you find yourself in the political crosshairs. And, and, you know, I I don't I just I want to ask you about it. I want to talk about it a little bit, then I'll let you go. But but. Because one of the things, when reading up about your story, and I did this years ago, and I was like, my God, because I can't remember who it was, but there was some trial in The Wire where they got somebody or Lester got somebody for (laughs) falsifying a mortgage report or or misrepresenting what was written on a mortgage report. And and they they actually did that to you in real life and made you plea to a crime because they had you on the mortgage thing mm-hmm. and but I uh, Ed got prosecuted for uh, what did they what did you what did you end up having to plead to and it was uh, misusing mis- 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 abusing discretionary fund but what it was is exactly what you said it's funny I was talking how realistic this is and people's stories are in this show they came to me before they wrote that and said how'd they do you what did they do so I told them what the, the prosecutor did and what they did they were looking to see if I had you know spending this money on all kinds of a lavish lifestyle they couldn't find what they wanted what they did find was when I bought my home in Baltimore I borrowed some money from my father but no $9,000 um, I grew up poor that's what my friends all did. We didn't have any money just to make sure you have enough to, to get you over the closing and all. I had I borrowed nine grand and I paid him back at some point. Unfortunately, we had signed a letter saying it was a gift. And the day I paid my father back the money, it technically becomes a loan, which means I lied uh, to an institution backed by the federal government. And the quote was, and you talk about people, you think drug dealers are, are ruthless. I was told by the prosecutor that the uh, if you don't take, we have you on this. If you don't take a plea, you'll never see your son grow up. It was four years old at the time, so I would have said I shot Kennedy if it's at that point. Um, that's what they do to people, and that's the corruption we have here, unfortunately. But that's exactly what happened. You're right, and it was written into the show. Yes. And I, I could never. Did you have to spend time in jail? You got oh, a sentence yeah. like six months. <laughs> How much time did you have to spend in jail? I spent six months inside. It was. Uh, it was kind of even that was crazy. I was in three different prisons. I was in um, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. I had a hurricane bear down on us. They, they took us out immediately. Sent us to Yazoo City, Mississippi, for a couple of months, um, and then I finished uh, in the penitentiary in Atlanta. So it was uh, fun all around. Well, Ed, I, I don't know if the the slang came from you, but I remember the great Avon Barksdale and Webay Bryce saying, "You only do two days. The day you go in." And the day you come out. 
Absolutely true. <laughs> that's probably exaggerated. <laughs> Ed, uh, thank you for the time. Sorry for your loss. Uh, it's a big appreciate loss for a lot you uh, joining us on the show. All right, it's good to see you. All right, that's Ed Norris, former Baltimore police commissioner, former cast member from The Wire. He played basically himself, Detective Ed Norris, and then in real life got caught up in a political assassination that's commonplace in some of these major cities. All right, uh, stick around. Uncle Jimmy is gonna eulogize Omar Little, I can't wait to see this. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe, hit that like button, leave a comment. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple, leave a comment, leave a rating, get our weight up. We need you to hit that five star button on Apple. All right, Uncle Jimmy. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just all right, Uncle Jimmy coming, y'all. Uncle Jimmy coming. For those of you that watch The Wire, you know that's playing off of Omar coming, and I believe Uncle Jimmy, or as I'm calling Ernie Isley here, uh, wants to do (laughs) No shirt for this eulogy, uh, Ernie? I just need my bulletproof vest on right now. That's all I need, man. Oh, yeah. But but you know, I mean, you you use the analogy. You talking about Ernie Isley, but you know, I'm sure that if Omar could help write something for the Isley brothers, he would probably say something like, well, can a feeling guarantee that your happiness shall endure? <laughs> huh? All right, then. Go ahead, man. Uh, get on with this uh, eulogy for Omar. Just one minute for me. Get yourself together. Thank you. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to say goodbye and pay our respects to the dearly departed. It means that he was once dearly and now he has departed. (laughs) That's true. In other words, Omar did, y'all. And I know it's hard to believe that we must say goodbye to, in the words of Tony Montana, one of the last bad guys in the industry. Yeah. There's, I'm here to tell you that Omar was a simple man. Wow. Omar was the type of guy that enjoyed puffing on the Newport just as much as he enjoyed puffing on a little young Puerto Rican boy. <sighs> Don't preach. Now, Omar was known in them streets as being a man's man. And there's no one that would argue with you about that, Jason. Wow. Omar was known on the streets as, 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 as the original Scarface. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he always respected the rules of the game that he played. Wow. Meaning, if he robbed a business of their illegal business, he would always make a purchase. 
You understand? Remember he went to the liquor store? Bought a pack of Newports. Remember when he went to Prop Joe? He took him his clock to fix. Uh-huh. See, in other words, I'm telling you, he, the boy had character. You know, Omar was what they call wise beyond his years. See, I don't know if you know this, but Omar was the first person to coin the phrase, if you're going to come at the king, you bet not miss. Mm. Okay, now let us not forget that this is the dude that told Brother Muzain, he said, I suppose we could, or we could settle this once and forever. He did say that. Okay, now I don't know if you remember this, Jason, but that was the alliance that led to the takedown of your boy, Stringer Bell. Wow. Now I'm gonna tell you this now, I don't know if Omar's in heaven, and I don't know if he's in hell. I just know that when he get there, he gonna be whistling, Farmer in the Dale. Mm. Mm. <laughs> R.I.P. Omar. Church say amen. Amen. That's it. Oh, by myself. Thank you, Ernie Isley, for that wonderful eulogy. Uh, I'm sure that Omar and Michael K. Williams, this is a special edition of Fearless. We talked about The Wire for the entire show. I loved it. I hope you did too, as well. If you haven't seen The Wire, go watch it. If you haven't rated this show, Hit that five-star button, hit the like, and subscribe. We'll see you tomorrow. Spread the word, darling. Negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Blessed, we are living, get back. We are receiving, all receiving. We all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be. I just want, I wanna be. I just want, I wanna be. I just.